my wife just sent me a message saying, can you tell dad that he's got to sort out his own dinner? And I'm like, yep, once I get out of the podcast. Yep. And knowing that I was in the podcast, so she replied to me and went, sorry, didn't realize you were in the podcast. And of course, so I get another bing off my laptop. I'm like, <laughs> Welcome to GCP Life, episode number 47 for the 25th of August, 2023. GCP Life is sponsored by Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. And I'm your host, Stephen Bancroft. On today's show, security, security, and more security, managed Prometheus and H3VMs, plus corporates start to use AI in the AI wars. But before we get to any of that, I'd like to introduce the co-host of the show, Ian Brown. How are you going, Ian? I'm good, Banky. How are you doing, buddy? Good, mate. Good, 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 good. I, I just feel I'm getting better and better and better at those intros. Just nailed to kick that one out of the park that time. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Good, good, good. Um, what have you been up to during the fortnight since we last spoke? Well, I've been doing well, a little bit. All of- the, we speak all the time. But, oh, you know, I know. Since, I the know. Show. <laughs> since we last spoke, which is about two minutes ago. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I've been doing some Apogee X training this week. Um, Apogee, right. So one of the guys here at Kasner has asked me to do the Apogee X training. So I got stuck into that. And, uh, and I've also been contributing a little bit to the Cockpit Project. Right. Right. A couple of PRs there, I think you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I've got, uh, I think this is the third third one that I've got in. So, yeah, let's hope they uh, they all get pulled in and merged into main and then we'll uh, we'll pick up something new tomorrow. Yeah, right. And um, you are a Red Hat developer, is that right? No, I am indeed. Yeah, right. So, um, what, do you, what do they give you? What are the benefits when you've got that? Um, oh, there's a heap of benefits to it. So you get OpenShift access for nothing. Um, they, like it, it's a basic OpenShift stuff. Uh, but you also get a copy of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So mm, I'm, nice. I'm currently running on my laptop RHEL 9. Um, yep. It's RHEL 9.2 or 9.3 now. I can't even remember. Right, because you kind of need that to develop, right? <laughs> well, you don't really, but um, but in my experience on my laptop, my very specific uh, Lenovo ThinkPad or IdeaPad or whatever it is, mm. um, I found that Fedora doesn't, like it crashes fairly frequently. And right. like you just can't have that. So um, RHEL actually works flawlessly on it. So I just went, well, I'll install RHEL and we'll use that. And I haven't had a problem since. Yeah, they've ironed out all the bugs in RHEL. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, Pipewire was a pain with uh, with Fedora. I had to put custom config into it, and every time it did an update, it used to brick all that config, and I'd have to do it all over again, and, yeah, it was just a nightmare. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah, I can't say uh, I'm not the biggest Red Hat user. I've been more sort of the being Ubuntu guy over the years, um, but, uh, yeah, I might give it a go one day. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's actually it was really easy to get started. I just I just jumped over to the Red Hat developers page um, and and signed up there, right. and um, yeah, I, I contribute to some of their stuff. So um, I actually decided this um, today. I was having a bit of a read, and I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna fork the Anaconda 
project and start contributing to that as well. So Anaconda's nice. the installer. Yep, 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 yep. I had heard about Anaconda. Um, I I think I pointed out to you, I had looked at the list of the being abandoned projects and there's quite a few of them. Oh, there's heaps. <laughs> and uh, uh, kicking around the idea of maybe getting involved with, uh, you know, being a maintainer for some of those packages, but we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, well, I'm happy to help. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, I uh, I've not had many much in the way of tech adventures. Of course, uh, as we've discussed, I am moving house, um, mm. and so it's all been about that uh, cleaning up. I just had a guy come and pick up a big pile of rubbish from all the stuff we've cleaned out here, collecting boxes and just going through all those uh, all those movements. You know, to get everything done. Um, not haven't got this place on the market just yet, but uh, oh, we've got all the ducks in the row to make all that happen. So nice, yeah, yeah. And, and thinking about my new studio space too, where I'll, I will be recording from. So <laughs> that'd be good. Happy, happy, happy. And of course, don't forget. Uh, well, our listeners should know we've got next coming up next twenty three, next twenty twenty three. That'll be August twenty nine to thirty first. So mm. I think we'll have a, we'll try and have a little wrap up about that in the next show. Yeah, well, and just Simon and Troy and uh, a dish are over in San Fran for that. That's right. We have some Kaznians going to that. That's right. Um, and we uh, we'll see how we go. We might get one of them on the show. That's probably a good idea. Yeah, and then they can give us a little little summary of what's happened, how it went. Uh, and of course, GCP Life Live. We had the announcement last week on the show about GCP Life Live. We've we've we uh, we announced it internally in Kazan as well, and. You, uh, if you're eagle-eyed, you would have seen a post on my socials on LinkedIn uh, about that as well, and a couple of us shared that out as well. So make sure you lock in that date, 6th of October, GCP Life Live. Um, just look on my LinkedIn feed. You'll find the details for that, and uh, yeah, there'll be some cross-posts coming out as well over the next few weeks. So Yep. Hopefully we get some traction with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, other than that, um, I don't know. Should we get on with the rest of the show? I think so. <laughs> All right. Let's get on with the news items. And uh, we thought we'd kick this week's off by looking at a few uh, new Google features. And, Ian, you're always, you're always bringing these Google features up. You know, look at this, look at this latest thing, latest <laughs> thing, latest and greatest. <laughs> Uh, and this first one uh, is improved cost visibility and 60% price drop for managed service for Prometheus. Yeah. yeah and and I, need to, I need to point out, this happens when you're sitting on the bench and you've got a lot of time to read. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike me that was reading articles five minutes before we went to air. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so um, now, look, I, I've got an admission um, – other than not being the uh, you know the, the biggest user of Kubernetes, I don't even really think I've used this before. So what's this all oh, about? Oh, really? Ian? You haven't used Prometheus? No. Oh, right. Okay. So Prometheus is like a uh, let's call it a monitoring system for um, well various things. You can really pump all sorts of data into Prometheus. Uh, and for for some time now, Kubernetes has had a managed Prometheus. Um, monitoring backend, uh, right. but Google has now decided that they're going to reduce the cost of it by about 60%, oh. which is huge. What? Like, what's brought this on? Like, why, why would they suddenly do this? 
Um, to be honest, it doesn't say does it? It, do- no. it doesn't say in the article, and I'm really not sure. Maybe it's they've optimized the the backends that um, that do this, and it's costing them a lot less to to yeah. um, realize than mm-hmm. they initially thought. But it, it is a considerable saving. Does mm, mm, mm. now companies of all shapes and sizes can get global observability as a service without having to excessively filter or drop metrics that keep costs down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the table that's on this article it's it's phenomenal. So the 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 first sample size you look at is like up to 50 billion samples. <laughs> um which is you think about that and go 50 billion. That's a lot of billions. Um it, it really is. Better, <laughs> yeah, exactly. More billions are better. Uh it's a, that's a that's a lot of samples, but you got to think that Kubernetes generates a lot of data. Like it, when it's just running pods and um, and daemon sets and all that, it it generates mm. a lot of information. A lot of metrics there. Yeah. yeah, and and one thing I didn't know is that Google actually doesn't run this. So once upon a time, it used to run Prometheus. It used to use like InfluxDB, which is a time series database. Um, yep. Google's yep. built their own. It's called Monarch. Right, and there's a there's a in this article there's actually the Google research paper that links to Google's Monarch time series database um, and gives you a bit of information about it. And you can you can read all about how Monarch works and um, and how it how they distribute it across the globe and all that sort of stuff. But it's a complete in memory time series database. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Monarch is a globally distributed in memory time series database system in Google. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's really cool. Um, they've got a whole heap of uh, free cloud monitoring system metrics. Uh, the article here quotes fifteen hundred or over fifteen hundred free cloud monitoring system metrics, um, queryable using um, PromQL, which is Prometheus's um, query language. Mm-hmm. Um, horizontally scalable managed collectors built into GKE, so you don't have to worry about. Oh, now I've got to put this extra plug-in into GKE in order to get metrics out. It's just, it's literally there. You can do it straight out of the box. Mm. Um, you can add Manage Prometheus to an existing cluster. Um, there is ways to do that. Um, and it's all it's all open telemetry-based collection. So if yep. you're using some third-party open telemetry tooling, you can plug that in as well. Right. What about with Anthos? I would assume that it would it would work with Anthos. I mean, Anthos mm. is running GKE. Exactly. So yeah. when I when I get my bare metal GKE node spun up, I could potentially use this to monitor it, right? You could. You could mm. use Open Telemetry and then pipe that directly into cloud monitoring too. I could do that as well. Oh, <laughs> the, the possibilities are endless. All right. Possibilities <laughs> are endless. I'm looking forward to playing that, but. Yes, unfortunately, I'm going to be quite time poor over the next few months, and um, yeah, I can't see that happening for a little bit. But I'm very excited to have a tinker with that, mm. um, and it's going to be cheap and like 1,500 free cloud monitoring metrics. So, is this these are, part of these are in, these are in Prometheus? These 1,500 metrics. This is in cloud monitoring. So, there's, oh there's right, there's 1,500 available or free. Uh, metrics that you can query inside a cloud monitoring specifically for GKE. 
Right. Okay. That that part I, I get. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it gives you an idea of how much data GKE generates. All right. Very cool. Um, clearly, um, encouraging people to use this for some reason. Um, competitiveness. Um, I don't know. Security, I guess. Um, well, it could be. Like a- you said, there probably come some, probably, they want to make things as cheap as possible. And if they've come up with some way of, of, optimizing the way this runs and yeah why not make it cheap as possible yeah that's it uh all right moving on then uh introducing hc compute optimized vms for high performance computing hpc uh we love a bit of uh, hpc um and uh these are based on intel's fourth generation xeon platform sapphire roads h3 vms deliver higher performance and lower cost to hpc users H, get this, H3 offers up to three times improvement per node performance, improved scalability for multi-workloads, and up to two times better price performance. So it's quicker and cheaper. Yep. Oh, yeah, heaps. Um, I, I love it because it's using uh, custom Intel uh, chips, so the Xeon uh, Sapphire Rapids chip. Yep. Uh, so the networking is built uh, for the... H3VM is built on Google's custom Intel Infrastructure Processing Unit, or IPU, mm. um, that powers their third-general VMs. And the Google's IPU includes offloaded networking stack and programmable packet processing engine that enables high levels of networking performance, isolation, and security. And it offers up to 200 gig a second default low-latency networking, which is twice yep. the previous generation. Yep, yep. Um, now, H3, it's available in public preview currently for compute and Kubernetes, and you can get 88 cores. Wow. Right? 88 cores. Now, that's with SMT disabled. I wonder why they turn off the, the hyper-threading. It's interesting. Hmm. Uh, and 352 gigabytes of memory. 352. Because yeah, right. if, if you know if you're training your large language model, this is what you need, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's some big numbers. Um, the 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 article goes on. The article link in the show notes uh, is quite in depth and goes on for a while. Gives you some some graphs on the um, H3 versus the C2, which is the previous generation. Um, and uh, you can you can easily see there two to three times easy. Let's tell you, there's something interesting that caught my eye in this article, uh, and, and something that I didn't think about at all until I mm. was reading through this um, this morning. So, when you think about Google's data centers, you think, right, yeah, they've got they've got let's go with hundreds of racks in a data center, and they're putting um, compute in there all over the place, and it's just sort of whatever they need goes into that rack whenever they need it. Um, but one of the fra- one of the paragraphs in here sort of made me question that a little bit. So it says the H3 machines also port compact placements and are deployed in large, dense pools to reduce latency and network jitter. So they must have a special section in the data center where these H3 machines reside so that they're all right next to each other. Yep. Yep. 
they uh, reduce the latency between them. Yeah, it was something that yeah, I hadn't so. considered yeah. before I'd read this. I was just like, my my thinking on it was, radio. Well, they just they need they need these types of VMs, so they just throw them in a rack, and then the next week they need a different type of VM in there or machine in mm. there, so they throw them in the in the in the open space they've got. Mm. But yeah, oh, speed of light, speed of light, right? So mm. I mean, you got to got to be as close as possible. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think it's going to care walking across a data center. <laughs> well, I mean, Google seems to think so. They well, put them next to each other. That's it. But it, but it was just something that I hadn't considered before, and it, mm. it made me question. Okay, maybe there's more organisation to this than what it appears on the surface. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, well, I mean, routing would be definitely a factor, right? You want to try and stay in layer two the yes. whole way through. Now, if you are on a different floor or a different building, you may be hopping up to layer three to, to and then there'd definitely be some latency introduced. So I'm just reading the compact placement policy. Use compact policies when you want VMs to be located close to each other for low network latencies between your VMs. So that's that's implying they are all going to be on the same layer two. Yeah, in, 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 you know, reading between the lines. Yeah, which definitely would reduce latency. Um, yeah, so there you go. Uh, we now have even faster machines. I, I remember talking about C three, uh, C. Oh, sorry, C two. What? Not even twelve months ago now. Oh yeah, that was. And now that's old gen. Yeah, yeah, that's old. That's old school. <laughs> now we've got H three. I think, I think so. we, were ta- we were talking about C two Ds or something. Was it last episode or the episode before? We were talking about C two Ds for something, and I was, I was like, these, these things are amazing. And then H threes are out, and it's like, yeah, yeah it's old school. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nineteen eighties. <laughs> that's right. Um... All right, uh, let's move on. Let's leave the features behind for a bit and uh, let's just shift gears and move into some security articles because we've got quite a few security items uh, on our card here today. Um, And the first one uh, is uh, quantum Google Chrome to shield encryption keys from promised quantum computers. Now, Google has started to deploy a hybrid key encapsulation mechanism, a CHEM to protect the sharing of symmetric encryption secrets during the establishment of secure TLS network connections. And the CHEM is quantum-proof. Right. What what does that exactly mean, though, quantum-proof? Quantum-proof. So, um, so, well, let's let's break this down here. Um, The Google Browser will include support for, now stay with me here, Ian, mm. it'll include support for the X25519 Kyber 768 yep. <laughs> encryption scheme. <laughs> <laughs> X25519 Kyber 768 encryption scheme. Now, uh, now it's a, that, that particular term is a concatenation of X25519, which is an elliptic, elliptic curve algorithm it's like uh, that's the, currently used in key arrangements. For, that's used for TLS connections now. Yeah, so that's right? that's similar to the E two five five nine one nine keys that we generate for SSH. That's right, mm. right. So this is a version for TLS, the symmetric keys that are used in a TLS connection, right? Now the interesting bit is the Kyber seven sixty eight. 
Now, this is a quantum-resistant chem, right, that last year won the NIST's blessing for post-quantum cryptography. So what they're doing is they're encapsulating X25519 in this Kyber 768 chem. Yeah, right. right? So, so the idea is that you can't use a quantum computer to decrypt the chem um, because be, X25519, you theoretically could use a quantum computer to de- decrypt that t- the, the, the TLS connection, but because it's wrapped in a chem, which is Cyber768, the quantum computer can't open the chem. Right. Right. That's that's the that's the theory behind it. Right. right. Okay. So yeah, because it's it's like I, I had a read of this article and and like it goes right in depth about how this oh, all yeah. works. It's fantastic. Um, it was interesting. Like a chem is a way to establish a shared secret between two parties, um, so they can communicate um, using symmetric symmetric key encryption. Wowzers. Tongue tied yeah. today. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the precursor to the uh, to the TLS handshake that happens um, when an HTTPS connection is set up, for instance, right? Hmm. Um, now, um, they say in this article, um, and this is just so typical, is a belief that quantum computers can break modern classical cryptography won't arrive for uh, five to ten years, <laughs> possibly even fifty. Yeah. <laughs> right. So why is it important to start now? Well, you know, these things move at glacial speeds. Hmm. So um now I did read in this article that uh this is a trial at the moment. It's 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 been pushed out uh to some users of Chrome and they have found problems with it. Okay. Uh and that is uh in some of the um appliances that are like the man in the middle for TLS connections, they have uh, hardwired, uh, you know, encryption buffer sizes, right? Because to do it at the right speed that they need to do, it's all done with ASIC. Yeah. Right? And uh, this, this breaks some of the ASIC that's, that's, uh, that's needed to, to manage those TLS connections. Are you telling me that banks who are doing man-in-the-middle attacks on their own people and their own networks with their next-generation firewalls will be thwarted by this? Yeah. Funny that. Oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> so it's interesting to see that this is actually happening, even though uh, quantum computing, it's, it's exciting and there's a lot of potential, but it's taken a long time. Oh, yeah. Right? Um. So this article does mention uh, in June this year, IBM researchers published a study uh, in Nature that claimed a 127-bit qubit processor set loose in a particular physics problem can, with sufficient error mitigation, outperform a classical computer. If confirmed by other researchers, the results suggest quantum computers have a, have a path forward, right? Even though it is taken a long while, it, it is, there, there is a way forward, but there have been other circumstances where they've done a demonstration with current computing, and uh, yeah, classical computing just beats it to the ground. Yeah, <laughs> so I think um, I, I mean it's, it's yet to be yet to be proofed out, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's that's one of those things that is once upon a time when AI was first was first getting uh, bounced around, everybody was like, oh yeah, no, it'll, it'll never take off, but. And that's the same with quantum computing. Like, it's going to take a while to get to the point where we've got the technology available. 
to mm. actually build a quantum computer um, without requiring it to run at like zero Kelvin. Uh, but it'll happen eventually. We covered an article on one of the very first episodes of GCP Life where we talked about this okay. um, Australian company um, building a drop-in quantum card, uh, much like a GPU would drop into a computer. Um, and they used a different approach with like a um, a matrix, a, a crystal matrix with a with a, with an evacuation in the middle that represented the qubit. I'd have to go back and read the article now to see how how it all all hung together. But they uh, they really got some promising um, technology around being actually able to do this, and they have a prototype yeah, of it as cool. well. So, uh, you know, it, it could just be, I mean, we've got to prepare for this because it could just be overnight, bang, suddenly everyone's buying quantum computer cards that drop into their machine and you, your classical machine has availability to several qubits, you know, to, to do, and you've got a Python library that, that uses it and you're away. <laughs> ah, Python, what can you not use it for? <laughs> what can you not use it for? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, we're getting this. It's starting to happen. Google got these quantum encryption keys, and um, yeah, mm. we'll, 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 see, we'll see how see what happens. Um, but yeah, moving on with security news, um, Google has also launched uh, Chronicle Cyber Shield to help government agencies tackle threats. What's this all about, Ian? Yeah, mate. This is uh, this is an interesting one. So uh, governments typically face a diverse set of um, challenges and threats, uh, which we all know, like every government is under attack by pretty much every other government out there. Uh, and and as, as we know in Australia, our government stores a large amount of data on us. You've only got to have a look at like my health record and your driver's license and all of the information that Centrelink carries on you and, and the tax office carries on you. So they're a huge target. Uh, so Chronicle Cyber, uh, Cyber Shield, sorry, um, it, the primary component of it is establishing a modern government security operations centre comprising a network of interconnected security operations centres um, to scale and aggregate security threats. So the whole idea of it is to gain data from a whole heap of different security centres and pull that into one space that can assist the government in... Uh, detecting and remediating threats on their own infrastructure. Right, and is this 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 uh, appears as a dashboard or something, or is this something that's in Chronicle? Well, look, the article doesn't exactly say that that mm. I can see in there. I would assume that it is something that just appears in the Chronicle seam. Right, and they're surfacing all this data for you, are they? It it uh, it does appear so. So it says here the solution um, allows governments to build a coordinated monitoring capability with Chronicle Seam to simplify threat detection, investigation, and hunting with the intelligence, speed, and scale of Google mm. by implementing Chronicle across uh, a network of SOCs or security operation centers. Attack patterns and correlated threat activity across multiple entities are available for investigation and analysis. So I suppose the benefit of that is not only do you have the same component, which is the the component that detects the 
the risk or evaluates the risk, but you've also got chronicle SOAR, which is the um, the automated response component. So mm. you can write a playbook to uh, to automatically mitigate an attack. Yeah, and that, that's that's a bit that caught my attention. With Chronicle Shield, governments can agree on pre-established terms and conditions for incident management and response support from Mandiant Google Cloud Stated. So, um, yeah, they can have have it all set up how they're going to respond, and uh, they they've got a preset plan in place to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so one of the other things that it, it says here in this article is with the digital security component of Chronicle CyberShield, governments can integrate with existing solutions and build anti-DDoS, anti-bot, web application firewall and API protection to protect against new and existing threats. So it it really is one of those... It's using Cloud Armor. It's using, yeah, it'd be yeah. using Cloud Armor yeah. in the background, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's another one of those those must-haves for not just governments but for businesses that hold uh, personally identifiable information on their on the citizens of the country. Yeah, we know Cloud Armor can be dynamic and can automatically protect against DDoS attacks and, and, and the like. Um, so it would be integrating with that. Uh, but pulling in the data from already existing government SOCs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really, really cool development on Google's part here. This is, this is um, a, a really good step forward to, to protect Australians at least from the myriad of hackers that seem to be targeting us. <laughs> My goodness, yeah, there's so many at the moment. Oh, we just uh, we, 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 we actually had to take some them. out. Yeah, we actually had to take some out. Speaking of that, um, hackers claim to have breached AUDA. Yeah, poor old outer. So, uh. so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Look, this. Uh, the, I was saying to you the other day because there's a there's a follow up to this story. There you is, you know, like <laughs> let's just talk about the apparent breach yeah, first. So and the then apparent, we'll get on to the, the follow up. Breach, they they learned about uh, they learned about a breach last Friday. Uh, they began working with industry experts to investigate the claim uh, that cyber some cyber criminal who isn't named in this uh, article, uh, by the way, um, has provided evidence of a small sample of data they say is in their possession. It includes screenshots of a file list on a computer. Uh, they say here their investigation remains ongoing, including to verify the cyber criminals' claims and provenance of that data. Uh, mm. And the criminals... They claim to have access to 15 gig yep. of the organisation's data, which includes... Powers of attorney, legal docs, passports, personal data, medical records, loan repayments, death certificates, custom bank account details, etc. Now, it's a lot. Th- this is a lot. My my first question when I read this article was, why would the Australian Domain Administration have powers of attorney, passports, medical records, loan repayment information, death certificate? Why? Why would they need yeah. any of this information? So yeah, this is true. Why would they have that? Yeah. So look, as it turns out, uh, earlier this week they came out and said, "Yep, we weren't breached. Go away. Not our, not our <laughs> problem." And what's the rule? Yeah. What's yeah, the rule? Yeah. <laughs> the, ru- the rule is the minute you dismiss it is when it <laughs> when it turns really really bad. Um, 
But they say the source of the data breach was an Australian sole trader. Now, this is getting on to the second article. This oh, is. Oh, oh. But before we move on to the second article, I want to say this first article says uh, Senator James Patton said on X, formerly Twitter. <laughs> Like, he excreted some information. This is this is this is where we're at now, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is where we're at. So yeah. anyway, we get on to the second article. So AUDA a- misses dismisses hack claims. They did. So they just they dismissed the claim, saying that the source of the data breach was an Australian sole trader. Now that raised the question in my head again: of why would an Australian sole trader have access to powers of attorney? Um, mm. legal documents and all that sort of, like all that data that they claim uh, was in the initial hack. Unless that sole trader, we, it's unlikely, but that sole, it's either their own information or um, they work in a field that um, they consult in a field that, that requires access to that information and it, mm. wasn't, uh, it wasn't appropriately secured. So they say the source of the data breach was a sole trader with an Australian domain name. The sole trader's server was subject to a malware attack uh, by the cyber criminal on the 10th of August, 2023. Um, they, they put a crypto locker on the, on the machine and they sort of ramped some uh, payment, but it wasn't paid. And that was the end yeah. of the article. It's like there was no closeout on it or anything. It was just like, yep, look, it was a sole trader. Don't worry about it. It's not us. Something's not adding up no, here. No, no, there's something, something here. Something is, is fishy. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a loose end here, and loose ends generally mean bad things. Yeah, and, and, and they do name the uh, cyber criminal. Can we, they- can we just peek? Yeah, at the top here they say, cyber criminals upper, operating under the moniker No Escape. Now, yes. can, can we just, like, come on, guys. If Let's moniker. Like, can we just standardise this? Like, handle, moniker, um, you know, a screen name. Like, come on, guys. So can we just have a standard way was, of referring to this? It was this always a mon- it, it was <laughs> always a handle. That was it. Was always it was a, your yeah. handle. Or, or yeah. I mean, back back when you were on a bulletin board system, it used to be your alias. But, alias. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, there's another one. Yeah, yeah, but we still called them handles. I mean, and that's showing my age that's, because yes, I was on a board board from the eighties. Yeah, when you that's used from to the 80s, dial it? into a BBS. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and of course. Um, like working on teletext. Avatar, avatar. No, oh, but that's the yeah. icon. That's that's your icon. Yeah, that's but what, I've heard people refer to the name as an avatar. Well. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. Um, we'll hear from this again. Anyway, <laughs> well, no. When I post this episode on my LinkedIn, if anyone can respond to that post and put in there. Any other alternative names for screen name, alias, handle, Monica? If you come, if you come up with any others, then let me know because I think we need that. We need a standard approach for this. We might have know. to put We're a gonna, GitHub page together but, for it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, well, only expect a sec pull requests. You know, if you want to add new ones, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Uh, all right, but we're going to watch this one because I smell a rat here. Yep. I really do. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of people who've, uh, who've suffered the, the, the blows of cyber criminals this year. And have tried to hose it down and, oh. and has, <laughs> hasn't worked. Latitude Financial flags $76 million in cyber incident costs. Yeah. So this is, this is another one. We covered this when it first happened uh, earlier mm. this year. 
this is pre-tax, $76 million in pre-tax costs and provisions relating to the mid-March cyber incident, which saw about a quarter of a million customer records stolen. Yeah. Which is, I mean, by all respects, they got away pretty lightly because you've only got to have a look at Medibank and they had a lot more stolen. Um, and, of course, hose that one down as a, there's nothing happened here. Um, but, look, it recorded an actual spend of $53 million, uh, in post-tax costs as forecasted in its uh, initial market guidance. And uh, the managing director and CEO, Bob Bellin, um, said, uh, was quoted as saying, we're beginning to generate the right outcomes even against the backdrop of what I'd consider to be continued monetary policy tightening, which is good. They're, they've invested a large amount of money in in uh, refactoring systems and securing systems so that they're not uh, vulnerable or as vulnerable yep. as they were, which is good. Yep. But it did hurt them. They, oh, they yeah. say here for a period of six weeks, new originations stopped, receivables declined, pricing actions were paused, and collection activities were significantly disrupted. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that's right. So uh, further on down the article, um, they uh, Bellin was quoted again as saying, during the first half of 2023, progress made on the integration of the simple business and technology has been exceptional. So simple business, uh, from what I read further, was uh, an acquisition that they made um, in 2021. And so they were integrating all of the the different systems that they've got. So now all new personal loans and auto loans are being originated on the new simple platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, disa- they're decommissioning all the high-cost legacy systems that oh. that was causing – well, that was the – uh, that was the systems that were breached. Because, you know, the thing is, once it's breached, you just don't know. That's right. Like, once that cat's out of the bag, like, you just, you could never, unless you can do a full system restore from a point, but I, I don't know, these old mainframe systems is, like, well, how do you do that? See, this <laughs> is the thing. So, uh, once upon a time, when I was at, at a previous job, I wrote the, the, uh, the, the breach procedure that was there, which was literally a case of wipe the machine and start from scratch because I'm going to assume that if someone has breached a system that I manage, that they have been in there for far longer than I know and I don't know how far back they've gone. So some some of these state-based actors will sit in a system for months or years before making themselves known. Mm-hmm. And they're not they're not just out for a quick buck. They'll they'll sit in there and they'll just collect data and they'll collect a map of your, your environment and then they just go through your environment slowly and surely. Siphon off what they can. Yep. Yep. And they do it slowly so you don't detect them. And on the off chance that you do, you don't know how long they've been there. So the safest solution is to wipe the machine and start again. It's a absolutely it's a yep. really, really hard thing to have to swallow. But honestly, it's uh, it's not a risk you want to take because if you restore a point in time, let's go, let's say you go back a week before it happened, before your breach happened, they, could have still been there. Yeah, yeah. you could you yeah. could be restoring the malware that they use to get into your system. Yep, yep. Um, 
gives another little feather in the cap for things like Puppet and Ansible, right? Yeah. If you're if you're building with that kind of automation, um, big deal. Blow the box away, just rebuild it from ground up. Yeah. With that, and 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 you know where you stand. Better yet, use containers. Don't have to worry about it. Don't even need to worry about that. That's it. Nope. Yep. No, let someone breach your container. They're not going to do a huge amount of damage to your container because the minute it starts malfunctioning, it reboots. They're gone. Yep. Yep. Unless you get a uh, supply chain attack like we've seen in the past, but yes. that's a whole other thing. No, right? that's right. <laughs> um, Balance said the company has taken steps to restructure and expand the executive leadership team as well. Uh, adding new mem- members post cyber incident, and you can bet that one of those uh, executive leadership teams is a security guy, and uh, they would be getting security reports. Oh, hundred uh, percent directly to the executive. Hundred percent. And we've talked we've talked about them before. You were the co-host, Ian. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, Dave and I, or maybe Vanita and I, talked about this. And th- these kind of reports should be going directly to the executive and saying, "What is our?" status our security status where are we at you know um what are we doing to prevent these kind of breaches they've got to take it more seriously yep yeah especially in this day and age Mm. all right moving on um just before we get to the ai wars i I thought i'd I'd sneak this one in here um article talking about um the the use cases for Google Cloud committed use discounts while we're on a finance tip. Um, now, first thing you probably should be aware of is committed use discounts are different to sustainable use discounts. Mm-hmm. Right now, just just to just to clarify it, su- sustainable discounts are when you have a VM, for instance, up for a certain period of time, and then you will get a discount automatically applied. You don't have to do anything. Yep. You got it running for the period of the month, they will automatically give you a discount. Now, committed use discounts are different. Committed use discounts is where you make a payment up front on a resource on Google Cloud, and you, you it's typically a one-year or three-year commitment that you make. You say, I'm going to use this resource for three years. You, you give Google that payment. They've got your money, yeah, but you can get a huge discount doing that. Yeah, and it's it literally is a massive discount. Like, you can save... 60, 70% of the cost of running a VM for mm. three years quite easily. Now, I need to do this. I, I'm really slack at the moment. I'm just running it as an, at the on-demand price, uh, just my personal web server. Um, I, I I need to go and do this because I know that web server is not going to go anywhere. I've moved it to Google Cloud. It's going to stay there. Cool. I should go and get myself some computer use discounts to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. whereas sustained use discounts are the – they're the basic thing. There's a you have the machine up for a month, and Google gives you a small amount of money off because you use it as a, use it for the entire month. Um, yep. Whereas, yeah, that as you said, the committed use is you you've got a one year commitment or you've got a three year commitment, and you sign up for that and you pay your cash down on day dot. Yep. Now the two can be combined. Yes. Right. Um, and uh, you get. You, you get now, I don't know if this is saying uh, whether it's combined or not. No, just to go back to the actual discounts themselves, for one year, up to 28% can be taken off. And for three year, up to 46% can be taken off. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, to, amazing. to your point before, you can 
you can blend them. So let, let's say yep. you've got um, a brilliant use case for this at GCVE. You know that you're going to need at least six hosts in GCVE. it's expensive. Yep. Yeah, it is <laughs> expensive. So you go, I'm going to need six hosts for three years because it's going to take us five years to completely revamp our product or, or redesign it or whatever you're going to do with it. So you go, Rodeo, I'm going to get a committed use discount for three years on six hosts. And then you go, Rodeo, I'm going to use sustained use discounts for any extra that I need to, to spin up and down. So if you, if you need seven hosts for six months, then you pay the sustained use discount for that. And you, mm-hmm. you still only pay for this. Uh, sorry, you've already paid your three years for, for the six original ones. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, now, this article is good because it, it goes through a list of use cases of why you would use CUDs, um, and they are steady-state workloads. So, obviously, if you've got machines that you know are going to be running and they're just running doing their thing, perfect. You you pay and you're going to say one year or three years. You just pay the money up front. You've got them at that reduced rate for three years. Uh, in much the same vein, predictable workloads. Uh, in other words, you're not using sort of crazy cloud, cloud load balances and spinning things up and down, you know, and turning things on and off all the time. You just got it running the whole time. Uh, you you got a perpetual web server that's there. This is that's what you want. You want to use a CUD. Uh, predictable growth. It, um, if you know you've got a steady growth, then you can start to say, right, in this first twelve months we want this much, and the next twelve months we want to go this much again. In the next 12 months, we want to go this much again. So that's, that's another perfect use case. And the, the, the point to that one is that you can do, let's, let's say uh, we, we stick with VMs because VMs are a nice, simple concept for people to grasp, mm. is mm. let's say you need 50 VMs in your first year and then the next year you might need 60 VMs. So what you do is put, uh, and you know that you're going to need them for at least five years, you go, right, yeah, well, I'm going to put a three-year cud on the first 50, and then the next year when you come along and you go, oh, right, yeah, we, we have to add another 10 to this. Like we've been running 10 machines at sustained use discount for for three months already. Uh, we know we're going to need these for at least three years, so you put three three years on those next 10. Mm. So And you mm. can keep doing that, and it just staggers. Now... To get on the next point here, you can combine, and we already touched on this, you combine it with other pricing models such as sustained use discounts and preemptible VMs. Yes. Right? You, you get even cheaper, right, using preemptible VMs. Um, budget planning. Right? Now, this is a big one as well because cloud costs, um, uh, I'm not going to say they can be unpredictable, but sometimes there are hidden factors that you're not aware of. And mm. we've all heard about the cloud cost blowouts and the horror stories around people getting <laughs> stupid bills. Yeah. Um, if you're committing the funds in a CUD, you know where you stand. Yep, that's it. And then that helps right. the, uh, the the bean counters in companies love that. They love knowing yep. exactly where they fit. Yep. Uh, now... Looking at the other side of the coin here, reserved capacity, right? So you may oversubscribe a little bit. That way you know that you've got the headroom and it's still going to cost you that much for that, that three-year period. 
right? So and but and you've got a little bit of headroom as there there to go along with it. Uh, that might be a strategy that suits you. Uh, and the last point here is a multi-year commitment. Uh, Google offers discounts for multi-year commitments, which can benefit organisations with long-term plans or projects. Um, and I think we've touched on that one as well. Yeah, and that which, helps uh, Google yeah. too. From a from a, a planning and resourcing perspective, that helps Google a lot as well. So either of these um, CUD options helps Google because they know that you're going to use X amount of compute for X number of years. Whether that's one or three years, you're going to use that compute. And even if you don't use that compute, you're paying for it, so they've got it reserved for you. Um, and yeah, so it helps them with their capacity plan. That's right, yeah. So, yep. And the reserve capacity, now this was an argument that I put forward to a business um, before I joined Kasna, in that, in that we have developer workstations or de- a development environment that gets shut down of an afternoon and then fired back up in the morning. Now that development environment is like 25 VMs. Um, we really need to pay a committed use discount for it. Because even though you're shutting it down at 8 o'clock at night and, and firing it back up in the morning, it's still costing you more to run it than it would if you committed to the use of it for 24 hours, uh, seven days a week, for one year. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that's, that's just a simple maths problem there, right? Like you just you put the two in a spreadsheet and you line them up and you go, which one's cheapest? And you go with the cheaper exactly. one. It's not hard. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it was... Look, the the proposal that I put forward never came off because people were like, no, because we're paying for it and it's and it's uh, but but what happens when it shuts down? We're wasting that money, and I'm like, but it's costing you more to have to shut it down than just it's to cheaper. leave it running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cheaper. And not only that, you probably get some, you might get some unexpected benefits by, by having it on 24 hours. You know. People might feel a little bit more flexible with the work that they can do and the hours they, they want to work, and then you've got the environment available at times when, you know, you wouldn't have thought you, you might need it. Yeah, that's emergencies. right. Emergencies. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Seven, seven use cases for Google Cloud committed use discounts. Yeah, cool article, that one. Yeah. Should we do it? Let's do it. Just, should we move on Let's- with the AI Wars? AI Wars. All right. Uh, this week's AI Wars um, sort of have a bit of a theme. Uh, it sort of seems to be um, in relation to corporate use of large language models. Uh, we'll kick the things off here with uh, – we might just say things just slowed down. Oh, they have, things yeah. Things have slowed the- down. I don't know if it's a media cycle thing or what, but the, the buzz has disappeared around AI. The buzz has really disappeared. Well, you know, Next is on Next is on shortly, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of AI talk, so it'll get it, it'll pick back up. It'll pick back <laughs> up again, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we had to sort of dig, dig for these ones, but this is interesting because we've talked about this on the show before and the potential of – corporates and enterprises using trained language models to assist them in, you know, all their policies and all their documents and all the things that they have, rather than having to be like a font of knowledge and scour all those documents, you just feed them all into a large language model and you can just ask it basic questions, you know, Mm. what's our policy on blah, and bang, you you get an answer from it. And that is more or less what Suncorp is starting to do. 
Yeah. Uh, they're saying we're already starting to have a look at some of those and starting to localize some of the chat GPT foundation models to see how we can do sentiment analysis on call transcriptions and things like that and understand if our customers are happy with us. So they're doing it on calls. Now, Google has been doing this for a while. Yeah, well, they've got a they've got a right. uh, in their voice recognition software. They actually have a sentiment parameter that comes back, or a sentiment result yeah. that comes back. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that they're doing. The article does go on to talk about uh, you know their their integration of large language models with with their you know corporate documentation. But um, this this did catch me out because. Well, you this is not new. Sentiment analysis is not new, but uh, yeah, it seems to be new to them. Um, funnily enough, this, this article also has generative AI is just an example of that. If I had a drink every time I heard Gen AI during my work week, I wouldn't make it past lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> Game on. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, that's yeah. Exactly. Look, the 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 term gets thrown around a lot. It really does. Yep. Um, it's a it's a buzzword. It's the the shiny new toy in the industry at the moment. Uh, but I I do see, and I've said this before. I I think it has a very valid place, assuming that it's used safely with the right ethos around it. Yeah. Um, the idea of using a generative AI to uh, we we talked about insurance industry with TAL uh, yep. to to generate documents or to process um, claims and that sort of stuff. Fantastic. Yep. If you're going to use it to um, do nefarious things, then not not so good. Not going to be as yeah. happy with you. Yeah, so Suncorp have already positioned themselves, right? So they spent the last four years moving data from on-premises into data warehouse one that's cloud-based. So they're already gearing up for it. Um, and they've got business intelligence teams and tools looking at that data, um, which is exactly perfect use case, right? Um, and they do go on to say that um, it's no longer acceptable um, to have, you know, a static dashboard to, to pull this data in and just, just look at it. Static dashboards updated at twenty every 24 hours, you know, you know, I go and look at my super, and they give me an they give me an estimate of what my super's yeah. worth. Be, that's only updated like every twenty four days or something, yeah, right? Once give a me month. something. Give, yeah, give me give me something dynamic, right? So this is the kind of thing they're talking about. And so they're looking at um, you know uh, live dashboards for that kind of thing, rather than sort of batch driven stuff. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things actually, I I, um, I noticed in this article was that that. With their, they're building on AI foundations. They're they're using mm. the data. Suncorp has previously used data to predict where our customers were going to be impacted by floods. Yes. So they've used that data combined with the customers' policies to understand where they are um, in an immediate impact zone and were already impact, or where they actually are going to be in a zone which was going to be impacted, which is cool. Yep. Like th- this is this is where I think AI is really going to help uh, civilizations to become a little bit more resilient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I bet you they use that to make decisions on their premium prices as well. Yeah, more than likely. Mm, yeah, 
Um, so it's good. It's it's good to see in a way. Um, this is you know doing doing more with less in a way. If computers can do a lot of this work, then that's uh, you know hopefully it makes things better, faster, cheaper in the long run. Um, if they're good, if they're ethical with the data that they have. Yep. And so um, I asked myself the question, how would they be doing this? Well, I'm not, you know, this is this next article, Contextual AI and Google Cloud Partner to bring Gen AI to the enterprise. This might be the kind of thing that they are using to do this. Although they did say they're using ChatGPT, but it would be similar, obviously. Yep. Um, Contextual AI, the company building AI that works for work today announced a strategic partnership with Google Cloud as its preferred cloud provider to build, run, and scale its growing business to train its large language models for the enterprise. Uh, now, this is based on NVIDIA H100 and A100 Tensor Core GPUs. We talked about we talked those about a few them, weeks yeah. ago. And what does it do? Contextual AI enables enterprises to unlock the two potential of AI by grounding language models in their internal knowledge bases and data sources. Built on Google Cloud, contextual language models, CLMs, will craft responses that are tailored to an enterprise's data and institutional knowledge, which results in higher accuracy, better compliance, less hallucination, and the ability to trace answers back to source documents. I like it. That's it. I like it. Yep. Repeatable and traceable. Yep. I like it. Having worked in a in a in a, a large enterprise, you would say Telstra is a large enterprise, probably one of the largest in the company. Uh, I can tell you the amount of documentations, policies, procedures um, that internal internet was full of stuff, oh. right? And um, trying to find the right person to do the right thing or like the right process to do something, it was it was a nightmare, and it made things extremely difficult. And you know, if you're a Telstra customer and you've ever had to report a problem or talk to someone <laughs> and then you, you get the runaround and you, you get different answers from different people all the time. That's why. This is why. Yep. That's what's going on. And it's not only Telstra, it's other large enterprises. That's the sort of thing that's going on inside. Yeah. And inside. look, my my older brother used to work at Telstra. He worked there for 17 or 18 years, something like mm. that, um, in the elongated provisioning section. So he would get all the – so provisioning is where you get a, a phone line provisioned to your house. Um, elongated provisioning is where Telstra can't complete that for one of many different reasons. Yeah. Um, one of which might be that you're like 10 kilometres from the nearest um, uh, mains or something like that that's running down the street. Or you might be right. 100 kilometres away. And he used to cop he used to cop flack from people all the time because he gets they, – they keep quoting that – and he said this is one of the things that he heard all the time was – you get different answers from different people every single time you ring. Yep, and that's yep because because they've read they've got some old information that was a policy from ten years ago, or they've read the wrong thing, or they've just made something up because they heard it from someone else. Yeah, um, wouldn't it be great if you could just go to the large language? You could just go to your your chat GPT and just plug the thing in, and it says, you know, this is the answer, but. But you know, yeah. it gives you the buts, here's, and and you get a consistent answer. Here's the here's the caveats, and here's the mm. the the general answer to your question. Yeah, and then all you need is a team that's that's sort of 
grooming that information and, and, and training it and, and weeding out, you know, incorrect data and, and populating fresh data all the time, right? Yeah. And then everyone gets the same answers. Well, see, and this, is, this is where I think the option of putting this out into the public is a good idea because if you've, like for Telstra, for instance, if you've got a knowledge base of, of answers there and you feed them into your large language model, um, and you release that that ability to question that um, that database of policies to the wild, out into the wild. You can see the responses that the AI has given to the public, and then you can vet that. You can have people actually vetting that against the policy documents, against the fact, and then yeah. correcting it as as required. Yeah, it's the same as what Google's done it. Um, Apple has been doing it for years. Your voice recordings where you ask Google to do something or ask Siri to do something, your voice recordings are sent back to the company and they listen to what you've asked and listen to what the answer that the the AI has given and they correct that. And that's that was – I had a friend of mine who used to vet those for Apple in Australia mm. because we apparently have a very weird accent. We apparently do. Now, this is all done, just as an interesting little tidbit, uh, this is all done with a technology called RAG, R-A-G, Retrieval Augmented Generation. It's a technique that underpins contextual AI, text-generating AI technologies. RAG, and, it's, and the reason I mention it, is because it's specific and allows enterprise customers to build custom language models on top of their data ensuring that data remains secure using external sources to generate responses that take context into consideration. That's cool. So that's the, that's the technique they're using it to, to build on top of their data, RAG, R-A-G. Yeah, so I thought, uh, yeah, I thought that would be a good one to look at given that uh, Suncorp is starting to do this. But uh, Meta. Meta are back, back in the – we almost forgot about yeah, Meta. Yeah, they're back I in mean, the game they, now. They, Back in the game. I mean, they kicked things off, right? Yeah. Really? Well, they, they kicked, kicked it off, off for the open source anyway. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Meta, Meta releases AI model for translating speech. Now, Google's doing this as well. It's done this for a while oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Their voice recognition API has been doing this for ages. Uh, but the difference is here. Meta is making the model, officially making the model available to the public for non-commercial use. <laughs> Not just by accident? Right. Not just leaking accident, no, <laughs> making it. Um, the article does go on to say, the world's biggest social media company has released a flurry of mostly free AI, AI models this year, including the large language model called Llama. I don't know if that was intentional or not. That posed a serious challenge to proprietary models sold by OpenAI and Google. Yeah, well, because oh, we Llama was yeah. the one that the open source community took and... Ran and with ran it. with it, and or, and yep. because it had virtually no feedback loops or anything in it when it was first dropped, and so the open source community's gone back and they've got they've got feedback loops in it and they've fleshed out everything, um, yeah, reflection and all of that. Yeah. that it's 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 it just, that, that's just grown, grown and grown and grown, and we probably need to do an update on that actually because hmm. um, we had all those other language models spin out of it now. And we, we tested some of them on the show on that, but uh, we probably need a little update on where we are with that. Yeah, um, definitely. In, in the coming weeks. I just haven't got time to tinker at the moment. Um, now, 
an interesting uh, point that's – oh, by the way, the company said the blog post that it's – so that the model they're releasing is called the Seamless M4T model, uh, and uh, it could support translations between text and speech in nearly 100 languages, as well as full speech-to-text as well as full speech to speech translation for 35 languages. That's cool. They're nice. Yeah. That's nice. And they've, re- they've released this for non commercial use, so you can go and get that and use it. Um, now, interestingly, this article, this is what I was going to say a second ago, uh, in, in July, comedian Sarah Silversman and two other authors filed copyright infringement lawsuits against both Meta and OpenAI, accusing the companies of using their books as training data without permission. Yeah, so and this is interesting because um, the next paragraph on from that says that Meta researchers said in a research paper they gathered audio training data from 4 million hours of raw audio originating from a publicly available repository of crawled web data without specifying which repository. Right, so it was an audio book that was available... I'm going to assume available for free in some repository, or has been downloaded and illegally published in some repository somewhere. Perhaps. Okay, all right. Okay, now they're using an audio version of it, right? They've obtained somehow. Now, think about this. Now, I'm an individual. I go and buy a book, right? I pay for that book. I use said book. I train my brain by reading said book, mm-hmm. right? If you're to do the same thing, if you're to go and buy the book, pay the license, train your model with that license, what's the difference? So I think there's a commercial agreement difference there in that as a private user, you're buying the book for your private use. It's much the same as um, once upon a time we used to go and, and hire a DVD or a video a VHS um, there's a different license fee associated with them. So ah, you can about commercial use. Yeah, you can go yeah. to your local um, JB Hi-Fi or whatever store and buy a DVD, and it might cost you thirty bucks or something like that. I don't know. I haven't bought a DVD. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, a I d- don't know. A I don't DV- know. Yeah, yeah. One of those what? things. Yeah. It's like a round <laughs> thing, and you put it in some device, <laughs> and it plays some stuff on your on your computer. It sort of like wow. does the same thing that Netflix does, um, but you've got to do lots of legwork. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, okay, okay. But, so, and then it might play it, if it doesn't, if it's not scratched. Yeah, if it's not scratched, it. if yeah, your okay. son hasn't yeah. tried to stick a bit of toast in the drawer. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so you might you might buy that DVD for let's say thirty bucks. I don't know. I don't know what they cost these days. Um, whereas if I was running a video shop, let's say Blockbuster or Video Two Thousand, to bring back some names that we haven't heard in like two decades, uh, that. That lo- that feed or that that video might cost me a hundred dollars for the same yeah, thing, exactly okay. the same case, okay. same th- everything. But it's because yeah. I'm on selling it. It's a commercial license, yep. right? But but Meta haven't even done that. Done that. No. They've just they just pulled like a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, you know, training algorithms done. They've just scraped the data from somewhere and just shoved it into their model. Well, it's the same as GitHub Copilot. Yep. Remember when that first came out? It was scraping a whole heap of private repositories and and using from- that data as suggestions. And it wasn't until Microsoft got called out on it that they went, oh, yeah, actually. It was the non-attribution that was the problem yeah. of GPL code. Yeah. Yep. 
So, look, there's there's bound to be hiccups here and there with this. As long as Meta's going to deal with it um, appropriately, like they're not just going to sweep it under the carpet and go, look, we're a multi-billion dollar company, you can get stuffed. Um, yeah. Yep. As long as they're going to deal with it and go, oh, yeah, look, okay, yeah, no, we grabbed that. Sorry, here's some money. Um, yeah. That might, that might be all it is. That's it. That might be all it needed. Just a commercial license to pay for that. Yep. Done. Like if um, I was that author, I would, I would be exactly that. It's like, look, you've used my book without paying the royalty. You need to pay me some money. And, and I'm happy for them to use it as long as I'm yep. getting the royalty for it because getting the royalty, that's your yep. job. That's yeah, and yeah, absolutely. I've got no, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's that's. I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. AI music's the same thing, right? Like they just go to YouTube, straight, scrape all the songs, and and put in your data in your data set, and they're not getting attributed for that, right? No. Although, um, although Google does have a very good detection algorithm there for detecting when you're using music uh, from specific artists. So there's a signature that's put into the music somehow. And I don't know much of the detail behind it, but there's a signature in it somehow where if you use a piece of music in your videos, um, Google can detect that piece of music is from a specific artist and then automatically flag that with the artist. Yep. That's the Python script that runs runs in the background of the Texas songs. <laughs> yes. Many YouTube channel has fallen foul of that. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, watch this space. We'll see uh, what Meta's doing, but uh, they're being yeah, they're just trying to scramble and play play with the big boys. That's how it seems. But if they if they're contributing to the open source part of it, then that's great. That's what we want to say. Yep, a hundred percent. All right. Well, I'm seeing well over an hour on the timer here, Ian, uh, and I think we've gone on quite enough. Correct. At the moment. Correct. It is definitely time to. Uh Go and say hello to my son, who should be home from school by now. And, uh, yeah, get on with some... Just finish off this uh, Apogee training. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, look, guys, don't forget to go to iTunes, write a review for the show to really help the show out. Uh, you can contact the show, gcplife at kasna.com. We've got the website there. Soon, Mastodon server, in. Yes, I hope very so. soon. Yes, very so. soon. Give me some... Very soon. Yep. Uh, and of course, don't forget GCP Life Live, 6th of October in Sydney. Uh, you'll get to see us uh, and uh, yeah, learn a few things and have a bit of a laugh as well. It's going to be great. Definitely the laugh. And of course, yeah, that's right. And of course, today's sponsor is Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. Uh, that's about it from me. Anything from you, Ian? No, mate. Have a All great good. fortnight and we'll be back in a fortnight. We'll be back in a fortnight. See you later. Bye. Bye. You only had a minute of recording before. Hey, I don't know if we've gotten enough outtakes. Uh, we'll see. We'll see.